Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Come to December to our last episode of the calendar year, 2023. Uh, So much to say today, but uh, before we jump into all that we have planned, um, how's it going? How how are the holly jolly days of Advent, Christmas, December? How's it going? Oh, it's been bad. But that's just... It's... (laughs) (laughs) It's just... Because, like... Dependably negative, Sarah. (laughs) I just feel so bad for my mom. And I really do every, you know, I say this all the time. I just, please don't say like, oh, they can see you and they're so proud of you. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it because that also means, that also means they have to feel horrible for me that they die between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like, I remember my mom was always like, oh, worst time to die. Am I right? You know, and here we are. And it is as bad as she thought it would be. Um, And I just kind of kept being like, like, I was talking to my sister-in-law a few weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Like, I think we're going to sail through this. Like, and then it just like hit me like a wall on Friday. Mm. And then Saturday I sat like literally we like decorated the Christmas tree as I'm crying. Like, which I'm just like, we're doing it all. You know what I mean? We're doing it all, guys. I think I'm on-ish the other side of that, but really brutal. Like, past few days have been pretty brutal. So, I mean, yeah. for, for listeners who are unaware, we just passed the third anniversary mm. of Sarah's parents' sudden and tragic death. Yeah. So, I, I mean, Gareth, you, you, you uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to say except for... Yeah. Yeah, I hope. I <laughs> can't believe I can't believe you're standing. It's hard out there for a pimp. Mm. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a blue, it's very, blue Christmas. Um, it's it's blue very Judy Christmas. Garland. Have you right? Uh, someday soon, we all will be together if the fates allow. Yes. Until then, we'll, we'll have, have to, to muddle, muddle through it's so somehow. True. It's Not so... the Frank Sinatra version. No hanging stars on highest boughs. Forget that. Oh, is that? Un- that's he so changed funny. It. He's like, he's like really? it's too negative. It's too negative. But the original Judy Garland oh, is until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Which is the I, only appropriate version. That's incredible. Yeah. No, that's exactly what it, it feels like. So I'm, I'm, yes. I feel like I'm almost definitely going to cry this episode. It's going to be a miracle if I don't. So just okay. heads up. Yeah. Well, what is, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, the opposite of whatever, uh, you know, depths of suffering that you're experiencing, RJ, you know, what's the latest installment of RJ's, you know, the glory uh, story, the glory glory story, story. (laughs) everything's great. Uh, I will say today I am tired. RJ, you're always tired. I'm bored. I am. I finally, people are like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm tired. I'm like, I'm always tired. Like that's just how, I mean, that stage of life where, Mm -hmm. you know, you're raising kids, you're working hard, you're getting up early, you're going to bed late, you're trying to find a little joy. Yeah. in between and you're tired we've yeah. also been out 
I think seven of the last 10 nights with some kind of, which has been fun, actually. It has actually been fun. And I've been worried about Marshall, but now he's like, when are you guys going out again? (laughs) Can you go out tonight too? (laughs) Yeah. These babysitters let me do whatever I want. Totally. We got home last night at 9.30. He was still up. You know, hour and a half past bedtime. What a gift. Let him sleep in this morning. He's (laughs) in first grade. Whatever. Um. So I'm I'm very tired, but I will say by the grace of God, and I'll talk about this a little more. It, it is it is a good tired. It's not an anxious tired, good, um, or like a depressed tired. It actually is like I'm incredibly grateful. Um, things just continue to go very well. Our boys are coming home uh, in the next few days. My wife is crying, looking at pictures of them, just thinking Aww. about them coming home. Oh. Um. So yeah, we're in a good spot, and it's good to be with you guys. Mm. So yeah. there you have it. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm I'm kind of like split the difference between the two of you. I feel like I'm on autopilot a little bit, you know, uh, with with, glue, Dave. Well, for so much, you know, like especially the the way that Mockingbird works, you know, we have to, we sort of get through budget season, then fundraising season, then sort of year end lists. I got the the gift guide, which is always my favorite thing to do. That's up on the website. And it's sort of one thing to the next combined with lots of fun social activities. But, um, you know, I'll take the spiritual emotional temperature probably this weekend and, and likely crash but yeah. mm. uh you know it's been a quite a year i think any year where you move and you're in oh, it, you know, it just is dude, it's the you, worst you're just grateful that you got to it and yeah. uh you know oh, you're, yeah. we're trying to figure out if our new house is does it feel like a christmas house or like how are we going to yeah. do it here and where this tree going to go and those are fun questions to ask and uh, yeah, the 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 kids are in, enjoying it. I've been putting up lights and all. I think I think the solar powered Christmas light is a major step forward in human. Um, huh. I know this exists. I'm not yeah, aware. Of this. I don't know if you know. Well, okay. Well, China okay. seems to make all sorts of Instagram. Maybe just uh, marketed it to my wife, but uh, you don't have to plug it in anywhere. That's that's huh. what. So that's why it's that's so great. Amazing. You can just you can decorate all these trees that you couldn't do before because yeah. they don't need to be plugged in, and it just it just outdoors. They just turn yes. on when yes. the sun goes down, and they charge all day. And um, that makes perfect sense. Okay, well, I thought I thought everyone I knew this, this, and I was the last no. one to the. Look, to the... we're both bringing a lot of Texas energy to this conversation, <laughs> oh. babe. So, like, we're like, what? Eco? Is, well, I thought we'd start off this episode before we jump into the articles. Is to give one sort of year-end recommendation or something that we're grateful for, something that we would want to impart from the year. I know, RJ, you've got something. Uh, I've got something that I've prepared. So, uh, what, RJ, why don't you go first so we can give Sarah oh. time to think since we we're know gonna she start didn't with, We're going to start with she the worst. She did not. We're going to start didn't. with the worst. Okay, please. Um, so so I'll, I'll start highbrow and then I'll go lowbrow. I think, what well, kind of highbrow? I, I was thinking the best thing I watched this year, and even though it came out last year, the thing which comes to mind is um, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. And I know you guys have seen that, but I think probably a lot of people still have not seen it. And I have a special connection to that because my son Jackson saw it before me and he's like, Dad, I watched that movie and then I cried for half an hour afterwards, which immediately I was like, "If my this made my 21-year-old cry. And then my son Spencer sent me this amazing YouTube video about how that movie actually does uh, portray a, a new vision of masculinity that really yeah. is strength expressed as weakness and not strength mm. expressed as strength mm. in sort of any kind of violent way. Um, so I, I really, I got I love that movie. I think that was probably the best thing I saw this year. The best book I read is one called, um, how the mountains grew about the geological history of the United States. I thought that was fascinating, 
And boring. then boring. Uh, Sorry, exactly. Super going. boring. Yep. Super boring. Oh yeah, exactly. And then uh, the best. I'm gonna recommend two YouTube channels um, for all you automotive enthusiasts. The new Top Gear, if you remember, Top Gear is called uh, Throttle House. It's out of Canada, and it's amazing. It's Throttle House is amazing, even for people that don't like cars, like Top Gear was. Hmm. And then my favorite sports YouTube channel is um, JJ Reddick, who did go to Duke, and I hate him, but his uh, his show is incredible and deeply insightful and funny, and he gets people to actually share about their real lives and to see these multi million dollar you know, world-class athletes, um, being vulnerable is really beautiful. So wow. those are my highlights of the year. There you go. All right. That. So just Sarah, edit that all out. No, that's great. Sarah, you, you, you ready? You ready I'm to ready. go? I'm all right. Ready. What do you got? Okay. So I have offered tips on things like uh, snail cream for your face on here. So we're going to start with the beauty product. Okay. okay. Yes. Here we well, go. It's called frownies. Okay. And it's these stickers, ladies. I mean, because you are, you guys can just like, you just get handsomer in your 50s or something. But for those of us that are starting to get lines on our faces, they're these stickers and you spray them with some stuff and you stick them on your forehead and then you can't move the muscles, not unlike Botox on your forehead and the lines get a lot less. And I just am not ready for Botox yet. And it sounds expensive and like I have to maintain it. And I feel like women never just say to other women like, hey, this is like a thing that like is going to help with all the lines on your face. I mean, I'm not making money off this. If I were making money off of it, I guess people do that professionally. But anyway, frownies. <laughs> Highly recommend. 12 brownies. out of 10. Okay? Brownies and frownies. That's what we used to do Brown- for highs and lows <laughs> at, at camp. <laughs> we have been brushing his teeth, yeah. if you remember. Oh, my God. Um, okay. But yeah, continue. So I read Lincoln and the Bardo this year. That was my favorite book I read. It's incredible if you haven't. It's uh, Saunders? Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's just this like fascinating it's it's so reminds me of c.s lewis's the great divorce and that people sort of choose the hell that they're in um but also it is about this very real historic thing where when todd lincoln died abraham lincoln would visit his grave and take his body out and hold him at night um in the weeks after his son todd died and it's just a beautiful 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 book i cannot recommend it enough i loved it so much uh lincoln and the bardo wow um so that was fabulous um there's a podcast i love it is not christian um it's (gasps) definitely it's definitely not as white as we are uh Mm. and um it is called Closet Confessions. It's done by two uh, black women who live in England. Oh. And it is hilarious and insightful. And especially if you're a woman, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, and it also feels like such a gift to me because most of the people who listen to this podcast are black women of you know who live all over the world and it's a podcast that's gone to like like in a year they have 20 million people that listen like it's just an mm. incredible listenership but i feel like i get let into this beautiful world of um culture and hopefulness and um insight that i i don't know anything about and so i absolutely love closet confessions also they start off every single episode with a riff on usher's closet confessions and they are confessions which i don't know if you guys remember at all and neither of them can remember the words so they're just like this is my confession just when i thought it and just that is like worth a million bucks to me 
So my final recommendation is, oh my God, join your church choir. I have had so much fun this year, y'all. I've never <laughs> joined a church choir. Good for you. That's um, awesome. And it's such an interesting, quirky, like specific way to learn about my community. And, you know, I've known people over the years who aren't believers who still love a church choir. And I think it's a wonderful way for you to kind of have an entrance into a great community. So anyway, join your church choir. That's my recommendation. That's been the best part about my year, I think. Well, I got tons of things to say, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, Movies and things, you know, we've talked about basically my favorite stuff I've seen, which I I mentioned the holdovers last time. The Saint of Second Chances was a Mm. real watershed and just kind of a a gift out of the blue. Uh, Books-wise, you sort of professionally, I finally read Andy Root, Andrew Root's sort of the... um, Ministry in a Secular Age series, uh, but the the Congregation in a Secular Age, Andy's speaking at our conference in New York, and he's just, it's fabulous. It's not that academic. It's really gut-level, interesting, full of the theology of the cross. He, he teaches at Luther Seminary up there. Just really, really good stuff, and, you know, it's sort of spoke my language, but in a in different enough key that it kind of sunk in afresh. The other book that... Um, a read uh, that is coming out next year, actually. I was just asked to look at an advanced version of this, but a woman named Elizabeth Oldfield is an English, uh, sort of, she's a bit like an English Krista Tippett, but she wrote a book that's sort of, that's about her own life and, and sort of explaining why she's a Christian in a very secular context. It's, it's got a lot of Francis Spufford vibes to it. Mm. Um, she sort of uses the seven virtues and vices, really the vices, to talk about sort of how faith touches down in the modern world. She's got a podcast called The Sacred. I haven't, I haven't listened to it, but I loved this book. Then, you know, I've still gone back to Nick Cave a bunch. His newsletter, The Red Hand Files, is the kind of guiding light. Anytime one comes in, I just uh, stop what I'm doing and read it. And uh, it's been nice to see so many people pick up his book, Faith, Hope, and Carnage. Uh, but my sort of the real pastor to me this year, it, it, from from an artistic point of view, has been Peter Gabriel, oh. the one-time singer for Genesis, and I think the purveyor of basically everything he's ever done is excellent. He doesn't do something unless he's really ready to do something. And he, this latest record, I think, is his first and. Seventeen or years, or possibly twenty-three years—I forget how long it's been since his up. Um, there, I saw something on Twitter the other day where a guy named Doug Morano said, "I get tired of under forty lists. Show me someone who got their PhD at sixty after losing everything. Give me the seventy-year-old debut novelist who writes from a lifetime of love and grief. Give me calloused hands and tender hearts." And there's something about that. Um, Dave, uh, I yeah, that's so beautiful. Gabriel's in his seventies, and he's still his voice is held up, and he's released a record called I.O. Um, and every single part of it is wonderful. And I got oh. to see him in concert in Washington in September as an uh, anniversary gift from my wife, and it was just it was just one of those transcendent concert experience that I hadn't had in a long time. It was so well done. But the man um, has an optimism about it that's not contrived. Um, He takes the darkness seriously, but there's so much light in it. And the last song is... Uh, that on the new record called Live and Let Live is all about it, how much strength and courage it takes to forgive. And um, mm. uh, it's 
he says, we, we belong to the burden until it's gone. And, uh, He's easy engaged in he he gave this concert and he gives credit to everyone in the band after every single song and it almost becomes like a nervous tick but you're just like how where do you see that kind of humility from that an artist of that stature so yeah those are my recommendations I love it Let's talk about the end of the year, though, a little bit. The first articles are about the word of the year. A few years ago, as we talked about this, and it was Goblin Mode was the number one word of the year. This year, there are two different ones. One's from Merriam-Webster. The word of the year for 2023 is authentic. Okay. Um, Hive, I mean, they're they're tracking data. That seems old to me. I know. So it's been around for a while. A high volume lookup most years. Authentic saw a substantial increase in 2023 driven by stories and conversations about AI, celebrity culture, identity, and social media. Authentic has a number of meanings, including not false or imitation, a synonym of real and actual, but also true to one's own personality, spirit, and character. Authentic is often connected to identity, whether national or personal. Celebrities uh, like singers Lainey Wilson, Sam Smith, and especially Taylor Swift all made headlines in 2023 with statements about seeking their authentic voice and authentic self. Good luck. The, you, well, before we really reveal the other <laughs> so one. You don't want to, actually. <laughs> just, what does that even mean? I open it. Suicide a ju- ideation. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you we go. Don't go into that closet. <laughs> Confessional the only authentic alone. claim is a thing which doesn't claim to be authentic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, but the the other one, the other word of the year, and Sarah, I'm sure you've heard this. RJ probably too. Is uh, from the, the Oxford Dictionary. It's Riz. Riz, R-I-Z-Z. I heard my godson's using this word. It's Gen Z slang for style, charm, or attractiveness, or the ability to attract a romantic or sexual partner. Yeah. Um, and it beat out contenders like situationship, prompt, de-influencing, and yes, Swifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riz is, they, they say it's a shortened form of charisma. Uh, mm-hmm. It emerged out of the internet and gaming culture. It uh, was popularized by a YouTuber named Kai uh, Kennett, who posted Riz Tip videos online and went viral in June after actor Tom Holland, not our Tom Holland, but the Spider-Man Tom Holland, right. in an interview with BuzzFeed said, I have no Riz whatsoever. I have limited Riz. The head of Oxford said one of the reasons it's moving from being a niche uh, social media phrase into the mainstream is it's just fun to say. When it comes off your tongue, there's a little bit of joy that comes with it. Remember the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Yes. Remember that with Steve yes. Martin and Michael yes. Caine? And, and Steve Martin plays the that Ruprecht character, you know, the brother oh, to like. Ruprecht. So so Jamie's brother um, used to call her Rizprecht. <laughs> so so that's when you say Riz. I just think of him calling her Rizprecht. <laughs> well, the other day my, my 13-year-old yeah. told me I had no Riz. And I, I thought to myself, <laughs> I don't know what that is. So I had to look at I had to figure out. I, I knew it was yeah. an insult. It, there's definitely no question <laughs> you know, yeah. that you wanted yeah. Riz. You didn't have it as a dad. What yeah. was the context of yeah. that? Like, why? What is it? He, like, just what was the context of saying that he to you? Was he his like, dad. His dad's like, good morning. He's like, you have no Riz. You have no Riz. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 going this, to a party. This is a kid no who you wake up, say, good morning. He says, what's wrong with you? You're like, oh my yeah. gosh. I'll yeah. just walk away slowly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, um, I 
just am fascinated by the absolute like made up words mm. that we're facing now um and that younger people are like making and it's like a whole new language that's happening in a way you know because it's typically been these like words of the year have been words that like either it's two words that got combined that you were like oh i have context for this or it was whatever it's a word that's resurfaced <clears throat> like authentic but this is like we're just making up a word now, basically. Mm. And I kind of love it. I mean, I, I, I really genuinely love all of the most wonderful parts about the interconnectedness of the internet. And I hate all of the horrible stuff. But to me, this is like, this is like kids in community and, you know, saying something off the top of their head and then another one attaches to it. And I don't know. I, I kind of love it, but Mm. Yeah. Spoken like the someone with that. some with significant riz. I do I a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I have on a merry and bright uh, pink sweatshirt, so I'm bringing the riz. <laughs> the word my, the, authentic the, riz over there. Authentic, authentic riz. riz. Authentic riz. The word my college kids use is a uh, bet. Did you? Oh, yeah. Did your, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. been around and, for, for and a little bit. And they say on God. Never heard that. Oh, yeah. Mm. So on if you God. like really mean something, you're like, on God, you know, like, and I'm like, are y'all getting religious up in here? They're not. But like, like that's I swear like, on God. Is that what it's like? Yeah, you say on God. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. it's like like on my on my mother's grave or something like that. You're saying on yes. God. Yeah. I just love language so much. Like, it is and really I, cool. I'm always fascinated by like where words from and how they're connected. And so I just think it's really cool that these kids do this now. But. English is uniquely cool too, because we don't have the thing they have in like France and Germany where they've got some governing board that decides like uh, what the words are going to be. You know what yeah. I mean? We're just yeah. like, it's a, it's a, English is a total yeah. free for all, yeah. which I love. It's yeah. very, it's very, very interesting. This past week, there was actually a long article in uh, the New York times about how, 60% of the French speakers in the world are now in Africa. And yeah. wow. they're revolutionizing the way that the, as you can imagine, through the rap and hip hop and stuff like that, they're sure. revolutionizing totally. the way French is, it's kind of bringing a whole new dimension to that. I, they, they say that, you know, a lot of times when we shorten words, we shorten the, the, the beginning, like, like app or rhino, mm. or mm-hmm. we do the end like hood or um, bot. So it's mm-hmm. very rare that you take if it if it really it does come from charisma and the guy who coined it says it doesn't so maybe um, I doubt it does. It doesn't matter like, what he says. Fridge is 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 a is a is or flu those are ones from the middle. I took a sociolinguistics class in college and um, hey, I, hey I, I know all and about it this shows, stuff. Yeah. Okay, yeah, <laughs> watch out. I feel like this is the dorkiest podcast we've ever done so far. Mainly I'm, me, I'm mainly for. me. But we're really getting in the weeds here. Like well, <laughs> authentic. I think we can all agree that's a moving target and uh, a, a dangerous one that creates a whole lot of uh, anxiety. I, I don't think it it's does. any... It's not as fun, for sure. No, no, no. And that's yeah. why I like... The Riz feels like in a world of so much, you know, anxiety about authenticity, let's just talk about Riz. I mean, it's... it's Riz, that's nice. Absolutely. We need something like good. Um, yeah. All right, well, we'll just, we're going to move on then to uh, something that's very current as well. This comes from... Uh, the Mockingbird site, and it was written by Jordan Griesbeck, who is a wonderful writer who I've been trying to court for years to write for us and to speak for us, and now he's going to speak in New York. But he wrote this. Um, I think this will this will hit home. He wrote, Thou shalt have a thing. Sloan is our smart one. Jack is our athlete. Peter is our musical one. He plays violin, guitar, and piano. 
There is an unrelenting pressure felt by every parent today. The pressure to find your child's capital T thing. That thing could be baseball, ballet, horseback riding, hockey, table tennis, good grades, trumpet, trombone, tuba, debate team, chess club. It doesn't matter. There are as many capital T things as there are things. What matters is your child having some identity marker which separates them and you from the pack, which they and you can display to the world, which grants them and you a reason for living. He says, I lived in Austin for six years, and during that time, I would go on runs around the lake, which flows through downtown, passing a mural painted by a local artist, which reads, Live a Great Story. I trust the artist had the best of intentions, and his words made a certain entrepreneurial CrossFit type inspired to run harder and live better. But I always felt a sense of despair. Because that is where we are now. We no longer live into a great story, but we must write a story of our own. We have eliminated that keyword into. Well, he says that your thing is the story that you are impelled to write for your child, and they are impelled to write for themselves. As our children enter high school, our garages become a shrine to all the different things we've tried over the years, full of hockey sticks, instruments, and various cleats. Our garages are where capital T things go to die, a chronicle of our dead ends and wasted money. By the time our children are seniors, we might look back and ask, what happened? Because in the end, the pressure of having a thing is sort of like a flow chart. Our child better be athletic. And if they're not, they better be smart. And if they're not, they better be musical. And if they're not, they better be pretty. Or else, or else, or else they are nothing. He says that there's two things that have helped him in this. The first was his son being born. When he was three, his son was diagnosed with epilepsy and then autism. Overnight, it became evident that he would never play organized sports, never be admitted to the private school down the road, and his life would look vastly different from what we had imagined or expected. Given the odds, he will likely never go to college, never live independently, and will struggle to find meaningful work. And yet, there are many graces to having an autistic child. One of the most profound is being released overnight from the pressure to find his or her thing. From the time he was three, my wife and I were released from that most ubiquitous of parenting idols, control, and forced to proverbially give our child back to God. The second thing that helped him was his dad. He said, my dad is a man without a thing. And I'm here to tell you that he's doing just fine. He just turned 70 years old, is still married, has four adult children who are all still in the church, and they all know that they are loved without condition, which, now that I think about it, is beginning to sound like another man who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was a talented and gifted child, as they say, sure. (laughs) known for hanging around the temple and teaching older scribes. But as gifted and special as he was, he never had a thing. He was no politician, philosopher, merchant, or celebrity. He resisted having a thing, preferring to become nothing, so that no one would ever need a thing. You see why I love this guy. Do you know what my thing was when I was a kid? Just trying to make out with anybody who would have me, you know? (laughs) <laughs> make out queen that's, that's make out what's queen, her thing why neil does drama yeah. what's sarah's <laughs> thing oh well she just makes out with people just makes it. out with whoever Whatever. whoever she's got yeah. riz um, she has the, yeah. she has riz. <laughs> um yeah it's weird because we are definitely we've kind of ha- managed to hold this off by virtue of like where we went to school and just whatever and now we're in the the thing air i write of middle school which is like he does this and he does that and he does this and they become i mean the beautiful thing about those is 
they give a child a, a like a, a an identity, a purpose, which I mm-hmm. think is like a really wonderful thing. And I, I think about children who grow up in tougher neighborhoods in predominantly communities of color and how important it is to their parents that those kids have a thing, right? Because mm. it keeps them safe. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with having a thing. The, the, the problem is, and it, this is totally from that book, Never Enough, that's just come out about raising children in a, a high-performing, you know, academic kind of settings, is, you know, if they're meaning comes directly from the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of their meaning coming from home. She talks about the word she always uses mattering. Do they matter at home? Right. Independent um, and, of this quote unquote thing. Yes, of this thing. And so it's a delicate dance. I I mean as a parent, I for sure. And we're already seeing that of you know, wanting them to ha- feel a, a community primarily, honestly, mm. in these activities with other kids without them feeling like they have to be the best. I mean, we, we used to talk about a lot on this podcast, that idea of like, kids don't want to do things and we don't want to do things as an adult if we're not the best at it. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Right. And so it's like pulling some of that apart. Like, I, I also just want to say, like, I've noticed especially around men y'all's age, this feeling you seem to get to this age and, and I'm feeling a little bit of this. I think I feel less of it because I've been through something traumatic, but where you kind of look around and you're like, well, I guess this is what we're doing. You know what I mean? Like, and does my life have meaning and am I doing enough? And what is my story? And it's like, I think we forget. I think that, I mean, this is more than you want to know, but I think that that happens more to men because there's sort of a disconnect, right, from family, which is such an identifier and a sort of a part of who we are as women. Mm. Um, Like, I don't, like, you don't have a thing. And it's like, well, of course you have a thing. You have, like, a house and children and, Mm. like, a family that some days you're harmonious with. And, like, that's a thing, you know? And it just also feels, and then I'll stop talking, like, such a modern construct in like the most exhaustive way Hmm. right like we used to lead simple lives where this was enough what's it's a culture of extreme specialization from an early age which is yeah uh deep it's inescapably performative and you're right there is i think a side effect of having a community that you know if and sometimes for some people church is their thing i I get that totally Um, not as many because that you can't put that on a college at least in in my milieu you can't put that on a college transcript but um this pressure, I, I feel it acutely with one of my children who um, isn't into sports and isn't into, you know, creativity. And um, what's his thing going to be? How can I help him mm. find his thing? And uh, that is a pressure that is, um, there's a part of it, I think, as you say, is wanting to help them, you know, uh, nurture their gifts and things like that. And there's a lot of that. But if I'm being totally honest, it's like, and me needing to know exactly who he's going to be and what it, what I need to do and and to put him in a box and and to kind of no, no longer think about it to figure this thing out to figure this human being out and uh, I don't think I don't think I know that in the New Testament there's talk about the body and some people are the hands and some people are the feet but I don't think 
God looks down at us and think, well, his thing is going to be ministry and her thing is going to be kids and her thing is going to be, right. you know, art and his thing is going to be jokes. You know, I, I, I don't know. It, it feels like your thing can be something for a little while and then, you know, it can be something different. Um, I don't know. It's your thing till it isn't. But the, and there's also this pressure to live this story and to have this arc, God a hero's bless arc. America. RJ, yes. you, it reminds me of stuff you've talked to me about. So. RJ, you're the only with the hero's arc, so talk to us, okay? <laughs> yeah, Charlie. Well, he's at the tell top us, of the top of the roller coaster what it's at least. Like, yeah. buddy. Oh my God. Do you, should I read that thing that I sent you, Dave? Yeah, should I read a little bit of that? This was this is so strange. This was actually the thing that probably had the most positive impact on me the entire year, and it's so random. I was up one night, probably like two months ago, feeling super anxious about my life, about church, just feeling the weight of the world. I wasn't sleeping well, and then a buddy of mine that I worked in ministry with like twenty years ago just posted this thing, and it's it's I don't know, it's a little embarrassing to read, but it, it actually. It helped me so much, and it, it really it kind of changed my life. Like I went mm-hmm. from a place of deep anxiety and loathing to a place of like some freedom and joy. And it's it's not written by a Christian, but it's so Christian, and I feel like it's so in line with what we all what we would call the theology of the cross. So um, I'm just gonna read the whole thing, Dave. It's not that long. Leonard Cohen said his teacher once told him that the older you get, the lonelier you become, and the deeper the love you need. This is because as we go through life, we tend to over-identify with being the hero of our stories. The hero isn't exactly having fun. He's getting kicked around, humiliated, and disgraced. But if we can let go of identifying with him, we can find our rightful place in the universe and a love more satisfying than any we've ever known. People constantly throw around the term hero's journey without having any idea what it really means. Everyone from CEOs to wellness influencers think the hero's journey means facing your fears, slaying a dragon, and gaining 25,000 followers on Instagram. But that's not the real hero's journey. In the real hero's journey, the dragon slays you. Mm. Much to your surprise, you couldn't make that marriage work. Much to your surprise, you turned 40 with no kids, no house, no prospects. Much to your surprise, the world didn't want the gifts you proudly offered it. If you're foolish, this is where you will abort the journey and start another and another, abusing your heart over and over for the brief illusion of winning. But if you're wise, you will let yourself be shattered Return to the village humbled, but with a newfound sense that you don't have to identify with the part of you that needs to win, needs to be recognized, needs to know. This is where your transcendent life begins. That was helpful because I was trying to be a hero. I was trying to do everything, and I really thought it was all up to me and everything was on my shoulders. And I think um, the thing about a story, you know, it's like who would want who would want to live an amazing story? Like, have you read amazing stories? Oh, things, don't, awful. things don't go well for the protagonist. No. Like, someone has to die. There has no. to be massive someone has suffering, to die. and yet that's also the truth of all of our lives. Yeah, right. God is constantly trying to say to us, "You're not me. You're not me. You're not me. You're not me." Just give up and enjoy the fact that I'm on your side and I love you, and you don't know anything, mm. and and you can just live a free life, knowing that I'm on your side. Um, and that I will provide for you. So, um, yeah, I, I, with kids, you know, I guess, Dave, what I would thought as you were talking, like, whether whether your son needs a thing or whether you need him to have a thing, mm. you know, whether it's – because I think I remember having things – my things, I was like, you know, kind of a singer, a little arty, a little drama, you know, the whole Christian thing. That was my thing. But that wasn't what my dad – that wasn't what my dad wanted my thing to be. Yeah. 
you know, uh, what my dad wanted. Uh, I remember talking to my next brother down, Patrick, and me saying, I think I've told this story before, me saying how hard it was to be the one that my dad thought was like pretty smart, but lazy and would never live up to his potential. Mm. And my brother was like, yeah, but, you know, imagine what it was like to be the quote hard worker, uh, you know? Yeah, that was me. Um, that was me. And, yeah. And the boxes you get uh, put in. Um, I was talking with a friend recently, kind of had a little bit of an argument about whether telling your kids, I just want you to be happy is helpful or not. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it is actually, because it, it feels freeing, but is it actually? Because, right. or, or is it more helpful to just say, I love you no matter what. Right. I'm here no matter what. Because what they often hear is what, I don't want you to be sad. I don't want you to be angry. I don't exactly. want you to be any of these yeah. other and the things. Pres- and that's a, yeah. that becomes its and, own form of And that's another story, oppression. right? If, you're, if, you, if you need your child's story to be that they're always happy and fulfilled, like, well, right. good luck with that right. <laughs> because that's not how life is. But um, I want my kids to, to have their thing, but I want it to be their thing, to be the thing they – choose and they want and to try to be as detached and non-anxious about it as I can possibly be and let them discover that for themselves. Um, yeah, it's it's very difficult for it's the, so hard. the thing not to be a euphemism for that which you use to justify your existence. Yes. And uh, certainly the gospel... As um, a parent or a child or it, whatever it is. Addresses that head on and being like, sort of, yeah. give it up. And I think at some level we have to make peace with the disappointment of being parents Mm. you know i think there's a lot to learn from that because they're not going to do they're not going to do what we want them to do unless we make them and if we make them you know then i I always say to my kids like now even when they have a hard day i'm like yeah but at the end of this day like you know trying to convince them to go to school in the morning some sometimes is really tough and it's like yeah but at the end of the day you're going to come home here to this soft place and we really love you. And I think that that does make so much more sense to me, RJ, than being like, we just want you to be happy. It's like, girl, he's in seventh grade. He's not going to be happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Like from the get, he's not yeah. going to be happy. So or he's about know. to graduate from college, which is the most anxious time of your life. Like, right. oh my God, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Is you he going to get a job? Like, that's is an, he going to like the job? Yeah. Like, if by some miracle you actually find happiness in your life for brief fleeting moments, like praise God, because mm. yes. it, uh, <laughs> you know, it's fleeting. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is a, a kind of that disappointment of being a parent uh, leads right into the next uh, article, which is something you sent me, Sarah. I saw it other places too, um, called How Millennials Learn to Dread Motherhood by Rachel Cohen Ooh. in Vox. It's very long. It's got some great stuff in it. It's also, you know, a journey, shall we say. Um but she says this is like how to explain why in survey after survey it is women with the most financial resources, the highest levels of education who report the most stress and unhappiness with motherhood. We often hear that the U.S. is the least family-friendly country in the industrial world, but the women who seem most dissatisfied with motherhood are the ones in jobs that, that do have maternity leave, paid yeah. sick days, and remote work flexibility. They're most likely to have decent health insurance and the least likely to be raising a child on their own. This is a 20-something-year-old woman saying, For the last decade, women my age have absorbed cultural messaging that motherhood is thankless and depleting, straining careers, health, and friendships, and destroying sex lives. Today, it's genuinely difficult to find mainstream portrayals of moms who are not stressed to the brink, depressed, isolated, or increasingly resentful. She sort of says it talks about Fleischman is in trouble and other shows like that. 
Should we stumble across moms on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok who do seem to be enjoying the experience of child rearing, we're taught to be very, very suspicious. We assume they're ridiculously wealthy or that they're peddling something, pitching us. In some ways, it feels like we're in the midst of a backlash to an earlier period that was too saccharine about motherhood. And it's not like we want to go back to the days when motherhood was sanitized, when the public heard virtually nothing about postpartum depression or motherhood penalties at work. Still, it is hard to shake the feeling that all these honest and unflinching portrayals are driving people like me away from having kids at all. Is it even possible anymore to find perspectives that are both credible and bright? The positive messages young women hear today about starting families come almost exclusively from the political right. Democrats haven't abandoned pro-family messages wholesale, but the rhetoric they use to muster support for family policies nearly always emphasizes crisis and scarcity, not strength, stability, or happiness. Enter trad wives, short for traditional wives, a trend that picked up steam over the last half decade, mostly on TikTok and Instagram, which depicts young moms expressing joy and contentment in caring for kids, a husband, and a house. Trad wives extol the safety of their contained worlds and portray professionally driven women as pitiful and lost. Of note, though, are their almost leftist sounding critiques of work and hustle culture. Now, she's a person who does not identify with the trad wife thing and yet finds herself watching it all the time on Instagram. She says there's something nice that she has to admit about these women's rather untortured commitment to the people they love. It's refreshing to see people enjoying caring for their family. And then this is probably the part that I found most interesting. She said, when I started asking women about their experiences as mothers, I was startled by the number who sheepishly admitted, and only after being pressed, that they had pretty equitable arrangements with their partners and even loved being moms, but were unlikely to say any of that publicly. Doing so could seem insensitive to those whose experiences were not as positive or to those in more frustrating relationships. Some also worried that betraying too much enthusiasm for child rearing could ossify essentialist tropes or detract from larger feminist goals. She quotes one Gen X lady who says, my entire friend group, we all raised great kids, but we're not writing about that because we don't want to be insufferable. If we say anything about it, people hate you. And I understand that. There are cultural taboos against talking too much about it and huge penalties for women bragging about anything. And then her sort of conclusion is that amid efforts to reject untenable parenting expectations, we should resist pressure to reject the vital work that is nurturing other people. It is an honor to care for one's family and community, writer Angela Garbs declared in her book, Essential Labor. We can recognize that for millions of women, raising children has been a central source of identity and meaning, and we can name this without fear that it will somehow unravel decades of feminist progress or that we'll risk empowering trad wives for saying what countless people experience as wonderful and true. And now, Sarah, one of the things she does surface in this article is that a lot of the, the... cultural pockets where motherhood is seen as much more positive are among women of color and it is yeah. even and women with a lot less uh, resources and the people that by and large there is a sort of a social class and racial dimension to this the women that by and large are portraying parenting as so awful especially mothering is so you know distasteful or just stressful tend to be upwardly mobile um, status conscious uh, you know college educated white ladies I think this is so related to the last thing we talked about, though. I mean, I think it is about that, uh, you know, that you're not just getting to parent. You're also not that mothers of color don't worry about their children's futures. They definitely do. But 
you're strategizing their their whole childhoods you know i mean we've we've we know people socially who are like our kid plays this sport because very few people in this area play this sport, which means our kid has a better chance of going to whatever college, which I'll be honest with you. I mean, Dave, you're nodding your head. I'd never heard somebody say that before. I hear it but all since the then, time, all the time. Yeah. Since then, I mean like Neil switched from the trumpet to the, Oh God, I can't remember some other instrument. <laughs> the French horn. <laughs> no. Trombone. The bat. Ba- uh, Please say trombone. No, this by far the funniest. Starts with a B. I can't remember. Anyway, right. I can't remember. It probably starts with something else. <laughs> anyway, I saw him play it last night. <laughs> um, I can't remember. Um, but like people were immediately like, "Oh, that instrument uh, is much more desirable because not many people play it, and he'll probably get a scholarship." And I mean, you can tell how invested I am because I can't remember the instrument's name. But a cornet. I just, I, <laughs> I, Dave's just gonna list off the whole band over here. It'll come to me. Um, I, I just I, that sounds horrible to live that way all the time. Sounds horrible. Of course you hate motherhood. Of course it's awful. Like you, you're you're having to optimize your kid every day, and it's a kid. Do you know how horrible they are? Like, no, you know, like they're mean. They, I mean, I got a new Christmas tree because my old one made me sad, and my kids do not care that my parents died. They're like, that's an ugly Christmas tree. Our grandparents died. You know, like they don't care. I mean, kids are horrible to you, and then you've got to like strategize for some sort of unachievable standard that sounds like actual hell to me like i i just it's making ourselves miserable for children that i think are also in turn pretty miserable rj what do you think about this i agree a lot with you sarah that yes seeing your kids as an end ends to a means or or justifying your existence or um you're living vicariously through them or they they they've got to meet this impossible standard it just that's a recipe for misery um i did have two other thoughts like when we were living in new york and we had two little kids and we were living in a small apartment and i was working a lot and and um it was hard you know and i remember jane being frustrated because she would try to you know sometimes talk with some of the um older moms whose kids were a little bit you know older than ours and and a lot of the response she got was like, what are you talking about? It wasn't that bad, mm-hmm. you know? And these tended to be people who had honestly a lot more money than we did, you know, who could afford like nannies and things like that. But then I remember there was one woman who was older and a little bit gruff. And at some point she just turned to Jamie and, and uh, out of the blue said, they were talking about the kids and this older lady was like, um, she said, gosh, I, having little kids was so hard. It was so, and mm-hmm. I was so lonely. And Jamie was like, thank God, like, thank God, yeah. like someone's not telling me I'm insane. So I think that's a yeah. real thing, you know, to, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And you know what I mean? Like everyone's got their own story and there are good moments and bad moments, you know, and, and I, I, I love my kids. I look back very fondly on raising them and, and currently raising them. And it's hard. It's all the things together. Yeah. That's what it's the most joyful and hardest thing in the world, right? It's, inc- it's incredible and infuriating and everything in between. The other thought I had is, um, remember when Bo Burnham in Inside says, um, can anyone, anyone at all just ever shut up about anything ever 
once? <laughs> you know, does, or, or, or does everyone have to, us, to say right? every single thing that yes. comes to their mind to every yes. single person on earth? Or can anyone ever, can one person ever just <laughs> shut the f*** up? Remember that? <laughs> And I think there's something to that. Like, why is it that every part of our life has to be so performative? Yeah. Like, not everyone needs to know everything about everything that we do. And not yeah. everything is for public consumption. Like, why? Yeah. I don't, like, come on. Yeah. Like, these things, I, I think, I know, whatever, the internet, social media, I get it. People are lonely. They, I mean, These poor moms are sitting at home. And of course, they're going to post their trad wife, wife stuff. Like, what else? They got to monetize it somehow. Right. Um. But like, isn't this stuff meant to be worked out in the context of interpersonal relationships, mm. you know, yeah. and not projecting yes. some image to the world? Because yes. we talked about, you know, girl, wash your face, girl, you know, yeah. like oh, it's true. Man. If it's too good to be true, it probably is too good yes. to be true. Oh, gosh. Yes. Um, I read about how that story I, is sort of gone unfolded recently. It's gotten even worse. It's so God. sad. But does everything have to be for for performative? That's the question. And, and you know? that's the question. But then your answer is like the truth, which is these are things that need to be worked out in interpersonal relationships and not on Al Gore's Internet. Yeah. What is it? I do think it's interesting that the story that sells certainly has become the one that's marketed. The story is that uh, to be a mom is just to be totally stressed out and kind of like you know, uh, yeah. kind of, there's truth and, to that. You know, to be honest sure. with you, Sarah, yes. another thing that Sarah sent to me this week and we, we were going to, I mean, the, it's just worth mentioning is the rate of alcohol abuse among women, especially mothers has, I mm -hmm. think tripled in terms of its sort of, uh, you know, in terms of like, uh, hospitalizations and, and treatment center type oh things, yeah. um, in a way that it hasn't for men th throughout. And it was increasing before COVID. It wasn't all COVID. And, uh, it, it strikes me as the expectations around motherhood have certainly skyrocketed and the amount of people probably hate watching these, frankly, a lot of them Mormon trad wives out in Utah yeah. who seem to have, you know, six kids, and and they, and everything everyone's got a packed lunch every day. It's I, yeah. I do think that that leads to a lot of what what they the Rolling Stones called Mother's Little Helper. Um, and today there's just a whole lot of suffering around this. But what she also found is that she when she actually looked at the data that the New York Times was using one of their alarmist articles about how all women hate motherhood. What she found was that actually no, like eighty percent reported being pretty happy about it. Yeah. It's just that yeah. there are 20% that really aren't. And, um, yeah. and that these social factors, these, these, this increased, you know, demand is a real thing. The vigilance and the uh, surveillance is a real thing. Um, and the comparison is very odious, but you know, I think they, she said that 2021 was known as the, in cinema as the year of sad moms. Um, so I just, my, I have compassion galore for this. I also know from, um, you know, being in therapy that, uh, uh, motherhood, what my therapist, she told me that motherhood is the number one shame trigger for most women. Uh, oh, for, sure. for men, it's usually not knowing something, uh, for, I've actually um, interfaced with people here and they've suggested, said magnet schools and i've said that's too far away and i'm telling you right now their face did not make me feel good you know yeah it's that because it's just like because they're it's like judgment yeah like well i mean shouldn't you drive your kids and i'm like i mean i guess i is this what we're doing now i mean i 
Is that going to be your thing? Uh, is that going to be your thing, Sarah? Is that going to be is that going to be our thing? The instrument that starts with that, a B? Yeah, uh, it's a baritone. A baritone what? Saxophone? Baritone sax. I think yeah. it's a baritone, baritone sax. sax. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. That's what Jamie yes. played. Jamie plays that. No, she does not. I need a picture. I was having oh fun picturing him with a bassoon. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you guys a picture, but I I you know I say all the time. I would drink so much more than I do if I weren't somebody that falls asleep after four ounces of white wine. Um, and I feel enormous empathy for the mothers in my lives who struggle with alcohol. And I, you know, I have friends who struggle with alcohol. Like it is very real. And if you're somebody that can put away three glasses of wine and keep going, that's hard. That article I mean, said really something hard. very interesting, Sarah. I didn't realize this, that all of the scientific research says that women um, and men drink differently uh, and that we know that, but women drink to relieve stress and men drink to sure. increase feelings of happiness. And yeah. those are, yeah. those are very different. And um, those are so and, different. Uh, so the amount of stress is correlated to, it's just a, you know, uh, I, mean, I, I Christianity, the, our, my faith is, uh, when I sometimes talk about it as relief, you know, I want to say this yeah. is a source, not another project, not another treadmill to perform on, but I, I find that the, the gospel is a word of relief. It's it's yeah. not just a re- relief spoken to some, you know, marshmallow cloud out there. It's, it's the relief spoken to real people who are under enormous amounts of pressure and using everything they can to self-medicate uh, because there's no other off switch. Uh, to life. And I, I, I want to totally just come back to that. I think the problem is that so does wine. Right. And, you know, and on some level, and I mean, you know, I, I do not drink on the weekdays period, the end, cause it makes me not functional in the ways that I need to be, except right. Except that my kid had some creative writing thing he had to do. And wouldn't, you know, he sat down at the table and he's like, I need to know details about how my grandparents died. And Josh Condon was like, do you want a glass of wine? And I was <laughs> like, yes, I'm going to, I mean, life so it happens. is that stress yeah. thing. Yeah. Life happens. Like it's just, it's, it's so hard. I think one, th- one thing that actually, I mean, to get any kind of perspective on this in light of the mercy and grace of God is a good thing. And I, I've found that this week in uh, the writer, Christian Wyman, the poet who we've, mm. we've talked about years ago. I just heard him interviewed on, uh, he's been, Terry he's been Grace. interviewed it's everywhere. So he's been on, yeah. He's on fresh air this week. Um, he, Mockingbird, we had him speak uh, on my about his book, My Bright Abyss, years ago, and he's a very interesting character who just speaks with the poet's sort of um, uh, ear for language. But he was interested. He was interviewed in Christianity Today by a guy named Josh Jeter about his new book called Zero at the Bone, and my goodness, he had some things to say. He said, uh, they, you received a cancer diagnosis 18 years ago, Josh Jeter says. How is your health now? He says, my health is excellent, but if you had asked this question a few months ago, I would have had a very different answer. I spent much of 2022 and 2023 in bed and would be dead now had a spot in a clinical trial in Boston not become available. For months, it was dicey and then proved successful. This was my 11th major treatment over the years. Cancer has so completely defined my life for two decades that I find it difficult to imagine life without it. Extreme illness is hell, but it does strip away the inessentials and make certain intimacies and insights possible, both with people and with God. 
I spent five weeks in Boston while their two old friends came at different times to be with me. One is a Jewish Buddhist poet with whom I've had an ongoing conversation about God for 35 years. The other is a Lebanese-Irish novelist who has a finely developed sense of and respect for the mystery of existence, but an antipathy for organized religion. What surprised me and has stayed with me during our time together was how close Christ seemed to be to us and how I could feel him in the care and love they showed for me. I'm not saying either is a quote-unquote anonymous Christian, to use Karl Rahner's unfortunate term. That would be condescending and disrespectful to both. What I am saying, though, is that Christ precedes and exceeds Christianity and that belief in him is not a precondition for his love. What a beautiful thing. Uh, The interviewer goes on, in an earlier chapter of your book, you quote George Herbert, who writes, I will complain yet praise, I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. Why is lament important? The interviewer asks. Here's Wyman. Well, you could have reframed the question to ask, why is praise important? Herbert is careful to insist on both. Christianity is predicated on a dual movement, the cross and the resurrection. The cross, we know. Each of us will lose whatever it is we most love. The course of human life is inescapably tragic. The resurrection, we imagine. We may be given through love, moments of grace in nature or with others, and an experience of transcendent art, attestations of it in this mortal life, but the thing itself is unutterably beyond. For us, I mean, I believe Jesus' resurrection happened. But this dimension of faith in literary terms is comic, which of course does not mean comical. Despite so much evidence to the contrary, Christians live toward a happy ending. I tend to feel the tragedy of life more than its comedy and must constantly check and correct this inclination. I know plenty of people oppositely disposed who need to season their days with vinegar rather than sugar. Herbert's point is that both dispositions are essential. And then he closes with this remarkable question and answer. The interviewer says, you cite Alexander Schmemann, the Orthodox theologian, who says, the knowledge of the fallen world does not kill joy which emanates in the world always constantly as a bright sorrow. The book ends with a meditation on the cross. What does the cross mean to you? Here's Wyman. This embarrasses me, but I teared up in the parking lot of my gym when I first read this question. Simone Weil once said that Christianity would be sufficient if it ended with the cross, that God would Mm. so love humans that he would become one, that he would die for us, for and with us, the sacralizing of matter by the incarnation, that this was miracle enough. I can't agree. Resurrection is the final fruition of that miracle. But I know what she meant. This life is hard. I am a Christian Mm. because I believe it looks unflinchingly at and redeems that fact. Mm. I know I read a lot, but it's worth reading. It's so good. Beautiful. It's so good. It reminds me of what we talked about the last episode with just the emphasis of Christ on the cross and how in our suffering, like that's for many of us where we find the most comfort. Hmm. Um, yeah. But it's not, it's not a sort I of, just, a ent- how old, I mean, this sucks. <laughs> Can I just be honest with y'all? I just did not think life meant I, I was going to be an insightful person and all that, but I did not count on this much suffering to produce it it sucks mm. nobody told me this you know and i and i'm seeing it everywhere now in a way that i didn't before and i'm sure it's always been there and i just wasn't reading those things or thinking in that way but um the only comfort i think i have sometimes is that other people 
are doing the same thing, you know? I mean, the fact that this guy puts out a book with the word despair in it, I just felt like, yeah, man, exactly. Hmm. Uh, sorry. That's just like, it's just not, I I didn't know. He, he's a guy I, that has been, he's been had to be forced to live in the clarifying scalding, as he calls it, like uh, experience of cancer and terminal right, illness. That's how we get and, Christian Wyman. And that's how right? he, we get and, Christian Wyman. That's how we get that we get these sayings about the resurrection, which yeah. seem so much less uh, trite. Right. RJ, what are you what are you thinking when you hear this? Accepting hardships is the pathway to peace. I'm just thinking about those moms. You know, that mm. that it, this is this is uh, parents, this is life. This is it's yeah. the suffering and the joy. It's the horror and the majesty, you yeah. know, it's the the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the yeah. every day has enough trouble of its own, but um, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these. It's just, it's you know, that is that's life. The up and downs of life, and I don't want to say. I want to say something like we're not. I'm not sure we're supposed to overthink it because I I love thinking about things and I love thoughtful pieces like this. But life is, I do think, I think I th- something like it's meant to be experienced as children in the light of God's love for us in the midst of the pain and the joy and his, his presence with us in the midst of the pain and the joy. Mm. That seems to be the thing which, which allows us to actually kind of move forward um, with some level of joy, but also not, uh, showing some compassion to ourselves and to our, our fellow human beings. Well, um, yeah. Let me just say that that reminds me, at least, of um, something that Sarah has written uh, for the site about Christmas time. And I want to end by talking about Christmas. But um, you know, this this kind of downbeat um, version of Christmas is not actually downbeat. Is uh, and that's uh, Sarah wrote a piece that's a beautiful piece called "Put the Sad Back in Christmas." Um, which is a little bit, it, which it clearly is in response to the kind of happy, clappy, have joy now uh, kind of yeah. vibe that we get. Um, you wrote this. She says, I wonder if we haul out the happy to force the feelings of sadness further into the dark. But the joke is on us. Real Christmas lives in the dark in dimly lit churches, in the community singing about lonely exile here in fluorescent YMCA's. We may think we can dress up our addictions or deep griefs with parties or shopping or forced smiles, but God will send Joni Mitchell's voice. (laughs) I wish I had a river to skate away, uh, to hunt us down. Because God knows that the more we deny ourselves the darkness of Christmas, the harder the light becomes to see. And I know this sounds crazy, but maybe the most beautiful part of Christmas is the sadness. Because if we try to ignore the grief and pain of human existence, then we are left with the worst part, the command to be happy at Christmas. It seems a ridiculous expectation that the day we remember the birth of our Savior is the same day that we expect some sort of euphoric joy. Jesus comes to us in the ruinous trenches we dig and decorate. He comes to us in the most broken parts of our hearts. And so to experience some kind of mandated electric happiness feels like it misses the point entirely. The truth about Christmas is that it holds everything all at once. Yes, you can be thankful and depressed about spending Christmas with your relatives. Yes, you can want to buy your kids gifts and become utterly put out by the energy the task demands. Yes, Jesus was born to save us. And yes, there is death on the horizon. 
The light of the world has come to save us from our sin, but we have to be willing to really see it, which means we need to admit to our ever-present darkness. So let's press pause on the dictatorial elation. What a phrase. Let's hold hands, stand in the darkness together, and whisper, Christmas is sad, while Joni Mitchell takes it from there. I wrote this because I brought to um, you by Lexapro. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so here's what's funny um, about Lexapro. Um, I watched my favorite Christmas movie with uh, my family uh, last week, The Family Stone. I love that Mm, movie. So good. And I did not cry at all. And this must have been two weeks ago. And I was like, I'm on too much meds. So because I am my own pharmacist, um, I cut the Lexapro's in half. <laughs> Bad <laughs> idea, Jean. so good right, right now. <laughs> right before the, the anniversary of my parents' death. Right before Christmas, you know. But I haven't. I, I, I'm glad I did it, y'all. I haven't really cried in a year. Like at mm-hmm. all. And it was becoming weird, you know. And so... um. I, maybe I did this to myself. I don't know, but I was in the YMCA and I, I actually, there's this woman named Aaliyah Sheffield, who is one of those young artists that became popular basically through the internet. And, um, she wrote this song, Dave, I think your dad, every time I hear it, hear it. And it's the, the, the main like chorus is earth is ghetto and I want to leave. And she talks about being beamed up and where the aliens can find her. And it just like every time it makes me, you know, there's a way in which the song is really sort of sad, but it also makes me think of of this idea of something coming from the outside mm. to rescue us, you know, yeah. some alien presence, which is so profoundly puzzled to me. I mean, that is like <laughs> such a thing that I have taken away from his life and his work. And so, so I'm listening to this song, like, Earth is ghetto. I want to leave. Like, just like happy. And then apparently Aaliyah Sheffield covered Joni Mitchell's River. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just started weeping in the gym. I mean, I could not stop crying. And I think certainly it was the death of my parents. But it's also like, I think I was beginning to feel... You know, we talk about motherhood, these standards of Christmas and the weight of having everything together, just burying me. Mm. And, you know, and I just sobbed and I, um, I do say this in the piece, but I kind of wish I just would have stood there for longer because our YMCA is elderly people and college students and nobody's lonelier than them. Mm. And I just thought somebody in here probably gets somebody in here is having a sad Christmas. And the the other thing I, I want to just say about this idea is, yes, I know churches have blue Christmas services. You're not going to catch my ass at one. OK, <laughs> and here's why, because I also need the joy of Christmas. I need both of those things together. And you can't tell me. <laughs> I mean, every church service is sad. We've got the body and the blood of Christ up there. I mean, there is something sad and heartbreaking every time we walk into church, and particularly on Christmas Eve. And um, mm. and I I know that I need that. My, I mean, I think would when I hear this, I think of my favorite 
Christmas song of the last couple of years that I discovered. It's an older song, but you know it, Sarah, from because Dolly Parton sang it originally. It was Hard Candy Christmas. Oh my God. Which Tracy Thorne, RJ from Everything But the Girl, did a cover of, which is just blew my socks off. And it's all about, it's a hard candy Christmas. I'm barely getting through. Um, and then the the movie that I, probably my, my, my favorite Christmas movie of recent years outside of the holdovers is uh, 12-Bit Christmas, which wallops you with an emotional punch at the end uh, that'll mm. uh, leave you flat. And it's just, it, it's the, I think Dickens said, it's the time of year when all remedial sorrow is sort of at hand. And um, to ignore that is to... Um, not to really behold the, the 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 baby in the manger. Yeah, and you know, I love that you mentioned Dickens because I keep thinking about um, you know, for me that the kind of I recoil a little bit at Scrooge and that that example of him because I don't think most of us are Scrooge. I think most of us live in the medium space. You know what We're I mean? Tiny Tim. And <laughs> yeah. But I think I'm Tiny Tim's mom. Do you know what I mean? I'm in the kitchen too much. I got to make these fools three meals Miss a day. Piggy, right? My husband's <laughs> right, Miss <laughs> Piggy. My husband's always at work. You know, like I and I. I think there is. Um, I love that this is also Dickens because I I had a little beef with him before before I read this beautiful thing that he's right. You know, it, sadness surfaces. Mm. Well, in December. Well, RJ, I want you to have the closing word, and I want you to give us a little preview of your, what you're sort of thinking about this Christmas or, or what message you want to impart uh, in light of what Sarah has said and just in light of the season. I want to read something. It's a anonymous poem that's hundreds of years old that was set to music by Benjamin Britten as part of his ceremony of carols. And I think to me, it just so perfectly integrates the, the wonder, the joy, the weakness of, of this season. It's called This Little Babe. This little babe, so few days old, is come to rifle Satan's fold. All hell doth at his presence quake, though he himself for cold do shake. For in this week, unarmed wise, the gates of hell he will surprise. With tears he fights and wins the field. His naked breast stands for a shield. His battering shot are babish cries. His arrows looks of weeping eyes. His martial ensigns, like the flags he flies, cold and need, and feeble flesh his warrior's steed. His camp is pitched in a stall, his bulwark but a broken wall. The crib his trench, hay stalks his stakes, of shepherds he his muster makes. And thus is sure his foe to wound, the angel's trump, alarum sound. My soul with Christ, join thou in fight, stick to the tents that he hath uh, piped, which I think means pitched. Within his crib is surest ward, this little babe will be thy guard. If thou would foil thy foes with joy, then flee not from this heavenly boy. I just love that, that um, the weapons of God are uh, a, a crying baby in a manger. So and uh, It's incredible, isn't it? And it just, it, yeah. it, 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 the way it comes together, the, the, the invasion that he makes um, this weeping baby. And that's the key to joy. To find to to be with him and to know that he's that baby has got our back, man, mm -hmm. um, mm. and he's with us in it. RJ, he just brings it sometimes. And uh, what what else do we say? <laughs> I mean, I'm not crying. Maybe I need less likes of pro RJ because that was crying. <laughs> that was a 
It's really, you got to listen to Ceremony of Carols by Benjamin Britten. That is just, it's so 20 minutes beautiful. long. It's the most beautiful thing We're ever. We're going to end it there yeah. and say Merry Christmas to both the two of you, but also to all of our listeners. We will reconvene uh, sometime in January. Um, do want to uh, just remind people of the appeal that RJ gave last uh, episode. Please give us money. All we, we need more give money. us all the money. <laughs> Seriously, we really. It, if 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 you have it, we would. We, it would be a great thing to support. Um, but wherever you are and whatever you have or don't have, um, Merry Christmas to you. Yeah. Merry and um, I hope uh, hope the new year finds you listening to lots of Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Amen. Love Amen. It. That's good. Joni Mitchell's so good. So good. If you can't get your hands on some Joni, though, uh, check out this incredible track from Caroline Fowler called Medium Christmas. Here we go.
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.